Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph South, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but who are influencing nonprofits, education policy and business, and are shaping how students learn. The public health crisis surrounding COVID-19 has led to school closures across the country, creating a need to transition to online learning. In this special season of Ed Influencers, we will talk to experts who are actively helping schools plan for and cope with the impact of long-term closures. School closures are creating challenges for all students and families, but especially for our most vulnerable student populations. In this episode, we will learn from Dr. Louise Perez, Technical Assistance Specialist at the National Center on Accessible Educational Materials about how we can ensure equitable learning during the COVID-19 global pandemic. All right, well, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Luis Perez, and I'm a Technical Assistance Specialist with the National Center on Accessible Educational Materials. Uh, We go by the AIM Center, that's A-E-M for short, and it's the AIM Center at CAST. Uh, So CAS is a nonprofit organization based in Wakefield, Massachusetts, that pioneered the development of the universal design for learning principles and continues to do research on inclusive learning practices and technologies. And the AIM Center is based at CAS as a uh, federally funded technical assistance center. So we are funded by the Office of Special Education Programs to increase the uh, availability, the provision, and the use of high-quality accessible educational materials uh, in order to promote uh, improved learning opportunities for all individuals with disabilities, both in learning and in employment. So your work is challenging, I'm sure, on any day of the year. I can only imagine how much more challenging it is under the current circumstances. As I've talked to educators, they talk about the struggles they have with just getting some sort of learning up and running. And when I mentioned to them the issue of special populations, many of them just don't even know where to start. Looking across the country, you know, from your vantage point, how is COVID-19 impacting the students that you work with and advocate for? I think in some ways it's a unique opportunity because it has really shown a lot of attention and interest in accessibility, which in the past uh, people have seen as sort of a side element, if you will. But now that so much learning is taking place online or through remote learning environments, um, accessibility really becomes key to ensuring that you know, all students have uh, an equal opportunity to participate and to continue to make progress in their learning. And one of the challenges is that um, a lot of educators have not been prepared always to bring accessibility into their instructional design. And so that has been a challenge. So what I try to tell educators is that start small. Uh, start with, um, you know, one practice that you can implement um, as you make this transition to teaching online or teaching in a blended way. And then over time, build on that practice, because I think it's going to be important that this is not a one-time crisis, that there probably will be um, other times, uh, possibly this year, possibly in future years, while we again will need to be flexible in how we provide instruction. And so this is not just an investment in sort of addressing the current issue, but in being prepared for the future. When you consider these students, what are the challenges that they face in an online environment in particular 
so one of the things is we typically just think about accessibility in terms of access to the content, being able to read the content, being able to process it and draw meaning from it. You know, within Universal Design for Learning, accessibility is just a foundational component. And there is more that goes into thinking about how learners can take information and then turn it into useful knowledge, which is really our goal. And so, for instance, uh, in the online environment, we have to consider executive functioning challenges. So for those that are not familiar, executive functioning is really those brain-based skills that help you stay organized, help you stay focused, help you stay on track so that you can monitor yourself in order to accomplish your learning goals. And when you're in an online environment, it really places a demand on those skills, um, especially when we're in a situation where you may be at home and there are competing demands for your attention. So there are other siblings, uh, there are parents that are working at home. So there's you know, all kinds of unique uh, challenges that are competing for your attention and placing special demands. Taking into consideration uh, you know, those additional challenges beyond just um, access to the learning environment, um, it's really important. And then also keeping in mind the affective dimensions of learning. Uh, traditionally, we've thought of cognition and the affective dimensions as being separate. We know from the learning sciences that uh, they're very much coupled together. And so when you're in a situation where you're stressed, uh, your ability to learn is going to be impacted. Uh, and so we need to make sure that uh, we're paying attention. Um, I don't know where I heard this. I wish I could remember so that I could give it appropriate credit but uh, paying attention or addressing Maslow before Bloom. So making sure that we're paying attention to kids, you know, most basic needs for safety, for belonging, for security. Uh, once we take care of those things, then we lay the foundation where learning can take place. Uh, so it's really finding a balance uh, between those two needs that learners have, you know, their, their learning needs as well as their affective and other needs. Just thinking about your comments about executive function, what can an educator do who's unfortunately remote from the student to try and address some of those needs when, of course, they can't eliminate the sibling from the background, they can't keep the dog from barking? So I, I think we can learn a lot from, um, you know, people who have done this in higher education where um, there are a lot of commuter schools where students typically spend a lot of time on buses and on trains. And when we design instruction for that kind of learner, we try to chunk the information. So we try to make sure that it's designed in sort of easier to consume chunks of information uh, so that if you have a few minutes, you can hop on your phone, hop on your tablet, and you can consume the amount of information that you know, makes sense at that time. Um, it also means that we need to be clear on the learning goals and we need to present those goals in a way that makes sense to the learner. So a lot of times we take the goals that come to us from standards and then <laughs> we kind of drop them in and really maybe change a word or two. But in this kind of environment, it's important that we take those goals and we really put them into uh, language that's uh, learner friendly and family friendly because uh, families are going to be one of the biggest assets in this kind of environment. Uh, and it really has to be a partnership. So we want to make sure that those learning goals, you know, they make sense to everyone, to the learner, to the family who could be providing that learning support. And then, like I said, think about, you know, the processing demands of the information. So making sure that there's a clear flow, that you know when you leave a piece of content, what's next? 
there's always that sort of connection flowing through the content and then it's in manageable chunks of information so that you can consume it in a flexible way. So it really comes down to good instructional design. Which as you've, another point you've been making, this is, this is not just good when you're at home, this is good all the time. Exactly. And then that's something that, you know, as a proponent of universal design and universal design for learning, that's something that we see often when we apply these concepts is, you know, something like captioning, for instance. Typically, we think about it in terms of providing access to learners who are deaf and hard of hearing. Right now, when you have students at home who may not always have a set of headphones and they need to access a video that the teacher or the instructor has put together. If they can't listen to the content, maybe they can turn on the captions. Or uh, as I've um, told people in the past, if you turn down the sound and you turn on the captions, boom, you're reading. So that's what it is. You're, you're being exposed to print. It's just in a different way. Uh, so you're reading and it's just in a different way. So those are some great tips. Do you have other suggestions for educators who are using media? Maybe they're using it for the first time, other things they can do to make that medium more accessible and more universally accessible? With video, I think the same thing holds true as with audio, is that you wanna make sure, uh, you know, a 10 minute video, 20 minute video, really puts a, a lot of demands on your memory, your ability to focus in the best of times. And it's certainly going to put an additional demand uh, during a time when things are, there's a lot of insecurity, there's a lot of demands on you. Uh, so just rather than creating one long video, maybe creating quite a few shorter videos that you can then put into a playlist. And then taking advantage of, you know, there's automatic captioning, but by itself, it's not enough. For instance, on YouTube, you can upload a video. YouTube can use speech recognition to caption it, but it's not quite there in terms of accuracy yet. So you need to go in and edit it, but they're usually very small edits. It's adding punctuation, just breaking up the sentences so that they actually sound like a person would speak rather than the world's longest run on sentence. And then um, in terms of like the equity that I mentioned, I've heard that a number of school districts are uh, sort of choosing the option of just sending uh, paper packets. Uh, home as a way of, um, you know, ensuring that everybody has access. Yeah. So let me, let me just unpack that. So what, what I've heard, and I think this is what you're referring to is because not everyone has access to the digital resources or because those digital resources may not have all of the accessibility features that they, they need to reach every learner. Um, some school districts are going completely to only paper. Very curious what your thoughts and comments are on that. I'm a big proponent of kind of giving people choice, and that's really at the center of universal design for learning, is that we provide people with choices for how they access information, how they consume it, how they process it, and so on. And when we take a step like that, where we just provide the content in one format, right, in this case print, then we're actually leaving out a lot of people, because um, there are people with visual impairments, I am one of them, who really struggles to you know, process the information uh, if it's in print. Uh, we have learners with you know, a range of different learning uh, challenges where a page of print is going to be a significant barrier to them. And so if a lot of those packets are already starting out as digital materials, they're starting out as a Microsoft Word document somewhere, and then it's being printed out just for distribution, then you know, why not include a link to in the packet 
that says, if you need this content in a digital format, you know, it's available here. And that could be in the districts using an LMS or if you have a classroom website. But again, you're giving people a choice. So you're not making that decision for them. And so that if they need that support, they have a way of getting access to it. And they may have a device at home already that has, you know, text-to-speech or that has um, the ability to take that information and present it to them in the way that they need it. Again, the more flexible we can be and the more that we can give people choice and support the, their autonomy, um, I think the better it is. If people are looking for examples of schools or organizations that are doing this really well, do you have some suggestions where they might look for those? Uh, so I'm gonna be a little bit biased. <laughs> uh, the National AIM Center, uh, we've really been focusing on taking information about accessibility and really putting it into language that it's not really aimed at developers or highly technical people, but it's really, um, you know, put in language that educators can take and, and make use of and start implementing right away. Now, I mentioned that beyond accessibility, we need to consider those effective needs that learners have. And recently we put out a call uh, just to get some examples of how people are addressing, you know, the special needs that some of the learners that they work with have. Uh, so I wanted to highlight just a couple of um, districts or schools here. Uh, Regional School Unit 21 in Maine, uh, they've been continuing to have um, IEP meetings. So those are individualized education program meetings. And they've been holding those virtually over Google Meet. And what I love about their approach is that, you know, they always begin each meeting with a check-in about distance learning. Is it working for you? Not only are there, you know, are there things that you need uh, that are related to learning, but are there things that you need related to social and emotional needs that you have? So again, keeping that balance in mind of when you check in, it's not, you know, do you have questions about the math problems I sent you? It's, how are you doing? What can I do to support you in during this difficult time? And even just validating people's feelings can be uh, really effective in sort of setting them up uh, for success and setting them up for being in a good state for learning. Uh, and then the other one, uh, Calhoun City Schools in Georgia. Um, and I love the work that their school psychologists are doing where they're holding virtual chats for students who you know, are experiencing anxiety or depression. And so that's something that we also need to consider during this time. Uh, we don't often think about mental health as a challenge uh, when it comes to special populations. And we need to start doing that. And I think uh, that this crisis has kind of shown a light on that, that that's an important component. We need to think of it as also trauma-informed uh, learning uh, practices are very valid during this time. So I love what they've done with those check-ins uh, where they're checking in their learners, see how they're doing with depression, with anxiety, and other mental health challenges. And as a New Yorker, I'm going to send a special shout out to School District 75. Um, that's a special education district for New York City schools. And as you know, New York City has been hit really hard by COVID-19. So um, I think they're a great exemplar of the spirit of educators. And is, are there particular practices that they're doing that um, you wanted to highlight? Uh, you know, it's just I've been following, uh, you know, individual educators that I know that work within the district and just the the swiftness with which they were able to prepare uh, devices to go out, but they didn't forget that, you know, it's not just about devices. 
So they put a lot of uh, time and effort into preparing really responsive PD, uh, professional development. That is key. Like you can send out all the devices you want, but if you don't put in the supports so that people can um, actually make use of those devices and those materials, then uh, you know, you're not going to get the most out of what you're doing. That's so, awesome. Uh, big shout out to them. I want to ask you about what can be really difficult cases, which are those students who typically rely on in-person supports. Obviously, that's impossible in this current configuration. Have you seen any uh, suggestions or ideas there or approaches that people are using to try and make up that deficit? Uh, absolutely. I think, um, as you said, it's, it's difficult to do that virtually. You know, don't underestimate the creativity and resourcefulness of educators. If, if there's nothing else that we take away from this, it's the spotlight on how creative educators can be. And so I've seen people using video chat platforms to provide teletherapy uh, for things like speech, language pathology, uh, occupational therapy, but also sort of rethinking the model so that when you're in this kind of situation, it has to be more of a coaching model where you're working with parents. There's two sides of the equation. You're going to bring your professional expertise, but really parents are going to be the ones on the ground, right? And they're going to be the ones implementing uh, what you teach them. So it really has to be a partnership and it has to be a coaching model. And that's what I see that's been successful. I've heard some parents have really appreciated learning some of the techniques that were typically only done at school. So they now feel like they can participate and be part of the solution. Absolutely. It means that they're going to be more active in future, you know, IP meetings uh, and future decisions about their children in school. There's always a silver lining to any difficult situation. And so the creativity that has come out of this is, is really one of the things to take away. What do you hope changes permanently and positively? What, cha what do you hope changes that will be better for for students in schools long-term? One thing is really the focus on, you know, the whole student that we start to think of it in terms, not just of uh, their learning needs, but as I mentioned earlier, their mental health needs. Uh, we start thinking about really difficult equity questions that we've sort of put off, but now this kind of situation, you know, brings them to the forefront. So who has access to technology? who has access to broadband. Um, these are the currency of, you know, being able to participate in our society and being able to go to school, being able to get a job. We're seeing that shopping, for instance, is important to be able to connect these days for you to access your groceries, your government services. Again, this is one crisis that has brought these things to the forefront, but it's probably not going to be the only time that we need to consider these issues. So my hope is that there is a greater focus on equity and that we expand the definition of equity so that it's not just you know students from low income backgrounds, but it's students from diverse ethnic backgrounds. It's students with disabilities. Um, you know, any kind of inequality that keeps people from having the benefits of our educational system is something that uh, we need to address. I guess the other thing that I would hope is that the whole idea of this is the way we've always done things, <laughs> that that starts to kind of loosen its grip on education because uh, we are seeing right now through the force of educators, right, and the great efforts that it is possible to shift sometimes kind of suddenly and without preparation and be able to do amazing things in the benefit of kids and families to make sure that 
you know, they're able to continue uh, learning, that learning keeps going. That's my hope is that we are more creative and that we're able to create um, more flexible and more agile uh, systems. Uh, we know that, you know, completely online may not always work because of many of the challenges that I mentioned earlier. It's not for everyone, but that maybe we can think about blended environments where some things can be doing, done online because the online environment is well suited for that. And then some things can be done in person because, you know, kids still miss the teachers. They still miss each other. They still miss that sense of community. And as much as we try to recreate that online, uh, it's not always the same as being able to see someone uh, in person. So really thinking about, you know, what, what can we do to create those more agile systems so that, again, we are more responsive to future crises that come along. So we're almost out of time. Let me slip in one more question. When you think about federal and state decision makers, policymakers, is there any specific action that, that comes to mind that they could take or issues they should be paying attention to on their level? I think in the past, specifically to the population of students that I'm familiar with, uh, you know, we've kind of drawn the line between home and school and where you have access to a device. For many of Many of them, students who have significant disabilities, <laughs> that line doesn't really exist. So we can't implement a policy where the devices have to stay at school. Say something like what just happened takes place again, and those devices are locked at school. And that means that student is without their voice, if it's a speech generation device, or they're without a braille display that they need to be able to access information and to continue their lives. So really thinking about that, that distinction between what's home and what's school, uh, I think it's really important going forward and rethinking policies around that. Um, and then I also think um, policies around mobile devices need to be rethought as well. And I'm gonna be a little bit controversial here, uh, but you know, they're a lifeline in, in this situation to a lot of people. And so we need to start thinking about how do we design for mobile devices as well? And accessibility can play a key role there because it was the move to mobile that actually kind of raised the profile of accessibility a number of years back. Uh, because if it works on a phone, if it's accessible, most likely it'll work well on a phone or a tablet. And so we need to design for different devices, if you will. And so the reason you're focused on mobile devices in particular is because they're more ubiquitous than, yes. than others? Yes, and, and we see, you know, there's research that for a lot of learners, um, that's the primary access method. They may not be able to afford a computer, but they may be able to get access to a phone or tablets that continue to be become even less expensive and get a tablet for under $100 now. Uh, but again, you know, there is limited power with that device. And so you can't design the latest and greatest with all the bells and whistles. You really need to strip it down to really good instructional design. Uh, in order to take advantage of those kinds of devices. So for people who are interested in the tips and suggestions you've given, what are some great places they can go to learn more? So I highly recommend uh, learning more about the Universal Design for Learning framework, and you can do that at cast.org. That's C-A-S-T dot O-R-G. And then uh, specific information about accessibility and accessible educational materials, you can go to aem.cast.org. Well, thank you so much for taking this time with us. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, I send my best to all of the educators out there that are keeping kids in their hearts and just continue to push forward to make sure that 
uh, you know, there's more equity and that, you know, everyone has an opportunity to enjoy the benefits of an education. The Ed Influencers Podcast is brought to you by ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. Special thanks to Leslie Huff, Linda Abano, and Jisoo Song for supporting the podcast development and production. Please visit learningkeepsgoing.org to access a curated list of free tools and resources to support schools and parents during extended COVID-19 closures, as well as an educator help desk where experts will answer your online learning questions.